Welcome to Head on History. I'm your host, Ali A. Alomi. This episode is brought to you by audibletrial.com slash headonhistory. You can head over there and get a free audiobook and support this podcast. I also wanted to start this episode off by giving a shout out to World History Educators Blog uh, for their very kind shout out and uh, support of the podcast. Uh, they uh, shared the episode on AP World History that we did with the Head on History special. Um, and shared the podcast as a resource for uh, world history educators. So shout out to you all and and in solidarity for the good fight that is uh, saving history education. All right, I wanted to talk today about a interesting topic because this is my other Islam season. I am introducing topics from that have weren't covered in the first two seasons and that go a little bit beyond the traditional kind of chronological narrative of Islam. So the first season was about establishing uh, the kind of chronology of Islam. The second season was an intellectual history of Islamic history. So how the theology developed, the philosophy behind Islam, uh, major thinkers, etc. And this season is more about looking at what is often falls in the margins, but what can actually be quite revealing about Islamic history. So we did a mini-series, we did a history of Islam in the Persian world, looking specifically at uh, how Islam arrived in Afghanistan, and how Afghanistan, while a small country, was actually the kind of heart and center of the Muslim world for a long period of time, and even in the uh, modern era, was slated to become the new kind of heart of Islam until kind of things shifted uh, and the geopolitics there. We did a mini-series within the episode on uh, Islam in the Maghreb, looking at Islam in Africa, Al-Andalus, and Islam's connection with Spain. And today I want to talk to you about a specific figure in Islamic history, and that is Al-Khidr. Al-Khidr is a unique figure that straddles both the kind of religious and mythological uh, stories within Islam, as well as appears in history texts. We find him both mentioned in the Quran, as well as in Al-Tabari, Muhammad Jarir Al-Tabari's Tariq al-Rasul wal-Mulk, that is, the history of prophets and kings, uh, kings and prophets. This is a, a, a kind of a massive universal history, one of the first to being, to being written uh, in the Muslim world, and really created the kind of view of world history that became uh, part of Muslim identity for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, in fact, any kind of history book that you would pick up written by Muslim historians took Al-Tabari's kind of chronology and, and uh, uh, mapping out of the world as part, as a given um, a part of their formulations uh, when they were writing history. So Al-Khadr is unique. He shows up in history books. He shows up in uh, the Quran. He is a mythic figure with some connections to history that I think reveal a lot about Islam's broader relationship to the Mediterranean and the Near East. So Al-Khadr, so that's what this episode is really going to be about, is to look at this kind of mystic figure and ask the question of what does this tell us about Islam and Islam's connection. So Al-Khadr means the green or the green one or the green man. He is a mythic or mystical figure who is supposed to be a prophet, a saint, a spiritual guide that uh, existed for the prophets themselves. And he is a kind of eternal figure because he shows up 
From time to time throughout history, he has deep relationships uh, to a variety of different groups within Islam, from Sunni and Shia Islam to even uh, certain Sufi practices really elevate him. Um, and he's also found in the Quran. We find him in Surah 18, Surah Qafs, uh, from verses 65 to 82. And it starts off and says, And they found a servant from among our servants, to whom he had given mercy from us and had taught him from us a certain secret knowledge. And it goes on to tell the story of Al-Khidr and Moses. So Moses, seeking out the wisdom of God, asked God that he find uh, a wise teacher. And so God told him to seek out a man named Al-Khidr and that he would find this man where two seas met and he would have to take with him a fish. And the fish is often associated with Al-Khidr. It's believed to be one of his symbols. In fact, some argue that astrologically speaking, it means that Al-Khidr is likely related to Pisces and the uh, planet of Mercury. And so he has some connotations or connections to uh, astrology there. So anyways, he he finally meets Al-Khidr in this cave and he asks Al-Khidr, please take me on as your student. Um, I wish to become wise like you. And Al-Khidr goes, you know what? I'm not interested in taking on students. I don't want to take anyone on kind of doing my own thing but Moses implores him and goes no please I'm, I I really want to become wise and Al-Khidr finally agrees and relents and goes okay I'll take you on as a student under one condition you were to follow me and observe but you were not allowed to question me don't ask me any questions so basically he's allowing him to kind of shadow him you know uh, do a buddy cop ride along so to speak but this time amongst prophets um and moses goes yeah no problem i got this i can do this and so they leave the cave and they're wandering along the shore looking for a ride across the sea and along comes this this ship with some very friendly sailors and go hey you know what if you guys are looking for a ride join us we will give you a ride and Moses and Al-Khidr jump on board they thank him very much they were very hospitable they drop him off at their location and right as Al-Khidr is leaving he takes his staff and he strikes the hull of the ship damaging it and Moses is like dude why did you do that? They were so kind to us. They were so nice to us. Why did you just damage their ship? And he goes, wait, didn't you remember your promise? You promised no questions. And Moses goes, you're right. I'm so sorry. I apologize. Please forgive me. Al-Khidr forgives him. And so they continue along on their journey. And they come across this little boy who's playing with toys out on the shoreline. And Al-Khidr reaches out, strikes him with his staff, and kills the boy. And Moses goes, what? Did you just murder someone? This breaks the laws of God. Why would you do that? What are you doing? Al-Khidr goes, hey, didn't I just say no questions? And Moses is like, okay, you're right. I'm so sorry. Won't happen again. And so they go follow along the shore, leaving the dead body behind. Um, and they go along this village. And at this village, they ask for food and a place to rest. And the villagers are assholes. And they go, no, we're not interested in strangers. You go away. We don't want to do anything with you. We don't want to help you out in any way, shape, or form. Being utterly rude, right? And, you know, kind of in the Mediterranean and Near Eastern traditions, there's nothing kind of worse than being rude to guests. And so he's like, no, go away. Um, and... Uh, Al-Khidr responds by locating a broken wall and repairing the broken wall. 
And Moses is like, I, I don't get it. You, you damaged the hull of those really nice sailors. You killed some innocent boy. And now he, here you are doing free labor for these people that were assholes to us. And Al-Khadr goes, look, this ends our journey. You clearly can't follow orders and you can't not ask me questions. And so I'm going to let you in on a little secret. The ship that we damaged was part of, uh, was going to be caught up in a net. A ruler was setting out for war and he was collecting all functioning ships. By damaging that ship, I saved those men from war. The ruler would have no interest in that ship because it was damaged. The boy that you saw as innocent would actually grow up to be an evil monster and a great oppression for his parents. So I killed them to save many people and to save his parents uh, the suffering. God will replace their child with a better, more pious child. I repaired this wall because at the bottom of this wall is a treasure that belongs to orphans. Had this wall fallen now, then the villagers would have found the treasure and they would have stripped the orphans of their rightful due. By repairing this wall, it will last several years until the orphans grow up, and then when it falls, the treasure will land in their hands. So Moses is struck by this. Al-Khidr goes, you could have learned more from me. But you failed. And he disappears. And this becomes a kind of fascinating uh, really experience or, or story told in the Quran. And it's associated with the idea that on one hand, there is this notion of fate. And we talked about this uh, in, in previous episodes, specifically in season two. We talked about uh, kismet or we talked about the qadr of Allah, the notion of that things in life are lauded out by God. And the relationship of Muslims to free will versus predestination really is articulated in the story of Al-Khidr, but also the story of uh, Al-Khidr being associated with ghaib, that is the hidden, a sort of hidden knowledge, um, often referred to as ilm-i-laduni, or esoteric knowledge, knowing the hidden meaning of things. This is why some interpreters of the Quran argue that the Quran itself has a hidden meaning, that there is a zahir and a batin, and a sort of exoteric interpretation of the Quran, outward appearance, just the literal, what do the words mean, and an esoteric, a sort of symbolic meaning to the Quran. So this story is kind of at the crux of the development of that kind of esoteric form. But it also tells us a little bit about the kind of religious milieu in which the Quran was written and which Islam arose. And that is that there is a notion of of knowledge that is inaccessible to man knowledge of a hidden realm of a realm that doesn't quite isn't quite available to uh, ordinary people but is only associated with a certain select few in this case Moses being such an important prophet of God even he doesn't have access to the knowledge that that uh, al-khidr has and we find this kind of this theme repeated even in the hadith ahmad ibn hanbal who becomes the founder of the hanbali school actually relates a hadith in which he argues that there is a connection between elijah 
and Khidr. Now, this is important because it tells us again that there are these kind of certain figures, even among the prophets, that have access to hidden knowledge in, in the tradition of Islam. But it also puts Islam in a particular place. Now, Al-Khidr is associated. Now, this is where the history comes in, right? So we've got the kind of religious dimension. So Al-Khidr is related to pre-Islamic figures, we find that the name Al-Khidr likely is an absorption of a Syriac word, that likely there is a connection with a figure known as Kotharwa Khasis. Kotharwa Khasis is a Ugaritic deity, a Ugaritic deity that uh, would be in the region of Canaan, of Syria, and the Levant. And this is a sorceress figure. And Kotharwa Khasis means the wise and the crafty, or the skilled and the crafty. And he's a sorcerer's figure, sort of ma a magician, a primordial magician that fights alongside Baal, the storm god. He actually fashions two clubs for Baal, uh, one known as Yagrush and another known as Aimur. And these two clubs are what Baal uses to fight off demons and devils, etc. Kothor uh, wa Khasis also shows up in Egyptian mythology, usually associated with Ptah, the god of um, uh, wisdom. And in Zoroastrianism, it's likely that uh, Al-Khidr was associated with Anahita, a female goddess of fertility. And we have this notion of the Pirasabs, this kind of uh, sh green shrine associated with fertility. And so what this kind of reveals to us is that Islam exists within a Near Eastern tradition of religions, that they're not all the same, to be clear, but that there is an interaction and that Islam is found between the kind of uh, Persianate tradition that we find with Anahita and his relationship to Al-Khadr, as well as the Levantine tradition in which we see Kothar wa Khasis's relationship to Al-Khadr. Indeed, if we were to see uh, the relationship between Elijah and Al-Khadr, Khadr coming associated with the kind of Persianate world and uh, Elijah associated with the Jewish world, Islam is born kind of in between that found in the Arabian and Arabian Peninsula. So we see that, that Khidr acts not just sort of as a mythic figure, but you can use the etymology of Khidr, use the sort of tracing of his name and the exchange of myths between cultures to, to position Islam. This helps us see the time period. There has been some uh, arguments that Islam may have developed later, that the figure of Muhammad may not have existed, and we, we talked about this with the uh, argument put forth by Patricia Crone when we talked in the first season, that Islam might have been a later creation of Arab empires, particularly the Umayyad, to kind of create a mythological founding for their empire. But when we look at the figure of Khidr found in the Quran, that disproves that theory to a certain degree. It pushes back against the narrative that, that Al-Khidr, or that, that Islam was kind of a later invention of empires, but rather are argues for a much earlier creation of Islam, one that situates it within a Near Eastern tradition between Judaism and the Persian tradition of Zoroastrianism. Now, in Al Tabari's Tariq, uh, Al Khidr is associated with Afridun. Afridun or Feridun is an ancient Persian king of Varenna, and he was meant, believed to be a very wise and just king. Now, 
this is an interesting addition to kind of the, the story that is told in the Quran and in the Hadiths. What this does is it links uh, Khadr first and foremost very clearly to not just the Zoroastrian tradition but, and the Zoroastrian Persian tradition. Uh, but also reveals to us that Al Tabari is building on something that may have that pre-existed, uh, that existed in some form or, or shape or form before he started writing. That there was a sort of historical chronology already present that he was absorbing and assimilating in his Islamic treaties of world history. In other words, Islamic history isn't just something that is fabricated out of thin air, and it is not something that simply has uh, religious connotations, but rather takes up a series of threads. In this case, the th Persian threads and build upon that and so that we see Jewish history, the references to Moses and Elijah, along with Persian history, being woven together in order to create a new kind of Islamic interpretation of that history, of taking what already existed, a certain chronology that existed. Here we have uh, Afridun, a Persianate king that was already part of the kind of chronology of the Sassanid Empire, that was already part of the kind of mythos of the Sasanians. Um, and takes that and then reinterprets that within an Islamic lens, arguing that Al-Khidr was a figure that likely guided or was uh, uh, a spiritual progenitor of of, of this is this is a very kind of unique historical experience, and it ta uh, talks to us about and tells us really about the process by which Islamic civilization reworked what was already there: components of Jewish history, components of Persian history, components of Zoroastrian history, and of course Christian history as well. Reworked them and created a new tapestry for itself, building upon what came before to create a new Islamic history. Now, in this Islamic history, what that then tells us is that what we call Islamic today, contemporaneously, may have meant a different thing while when Tabari was writing. It may have meant a much more coalition and broad definition. That is, that to be Islamic meant that you were part of a civilization that did include Persian identity, that it didn't include Zoroastrian, that did include Christian and Jewish, that it wasn't just a Muslim community. And now we know this because recent research has revealed, um, for example, in this fantastic upcoming book, The Making of the Medieval Muslim World, the, that the Muslim population remained a minority in the Middle East for much of uh, early Islam's history. So from the 7th century to roughly about the 9th or 10th century, Muslims were a minority ruling over a population that included older Sasanian elements, uh, Zoroastrian elements, Christian elements, Jewish elements. And so that by, do, by reworking those stories, what Islam was doing was fitting it, on one hand, reflecting the cultural milieu in which all of these traditions existed simultaneously and side by side, but also recreating uh, a sort of a new 
hierarchy in which those stories are absorbed, Islam in this instance becomes the product of a natural chronology. That's what Al-Tabari is doing. The inclusion of Al-Khidr and his story is really important in that regard. It's not just a throwaway. It's not just a, oh, he's not just some random mythic figure, but he really reveals to us a way in which we can position Islam, early Islam, in its cultural and religious milieu by looking at the way as in which it conceived of its own history. This is a history that's arguing that, okay, we're thousands of years old. We're not just, we didn't just appear in the 7th century with Muhammad. No, we have figures like Al-Khidr that have been eternal and have lived forever. And that figure is associated with all these other individuals, with Elijah and Moses and Afridun. And as a result, really kind of situate Islam as a product of a cycling of history that, you know, this is the newest, latest cycle of history that God has ordained Islam to arrive. So it's a way of kind of articulating uh, the conception of Islam by historians, how Islam conceived, how Islamic historians and Muslim historians conceived of, of Islam. So Al-Khidr then goes on, really in this time period, to become a figure huge in Sufism. Now, in Sunnism, we already talked about uh, his role in, in the Qur'an. Uh, even in Shia Islam, he, he shows up... Um, he becomes a very important uh, figure associated with uh, Jam Khanan. Jam is a, uh, a shrine, uh, a mosque associated with the Mahdi, uh, a, a messianic figure, the 12th Imam or the last Imam uh, in, in Shia Islam. And so we see Al-Khidr very, appears very much there, again, showing us the kind of Persian connection with Jam Karan, the shrine in Jam Karan, but also very much in Sufism. In Sufism, he becomes the kind of prototype of the psychopomp, uh, sort of oniromancer, a, a figure who, who brings about dreams and inspires people. He becomes the prototype of the Sufi themselves, a sort of itinerant wanderer, uh, versed in sort of hidden knowledge. He becomes an a figure associated with initiation and revelation without human intercession. He has direct connection with God. He is, of course, uh, has ilm al-ladouni, the, the esoteric knowledge, and is even connected with historical Sufi figures like Abdul Qadir Jilani and Ibn Arabi, both of whom claim to have met al-Khidr and received some of his, his teachings. So he does become a mystic figure, and he does eventually become a sort of a a prototype of the Sufi. The Sufi models themselves after uh, Al-Khadr, that is, that they believe in a sort of inner truth, an internal truth that um, may sometimes elude the uninitiated. And this this kind of figure of the initiator or, or whatnot is, is a product of that historical moment in which Al-Khidr is used to articulate uh, the, the experience of the Muslims, of taking the kind of building upon what is already there, drawing in the fabric of these different cultural and religious traditions in order to uh, reinterpret and restructure and recreate a sort of Islamic identity at that time period. It's a, it's a very fascinating and unique moment in history. The absorption of him into Sufi Islam, in other words, is an interaction of Islam with those traditions. In many ways, what 
Al-Khidr becomes is Elijah. Al-Khidr is to Islam what Elijah is to Judaism, a sort of prototype of the prophets, an older prophet that become, is so deeply associated with God that he then uh, becomes sort of eternal and immortal figure. I'll remember, Elijah in the biblical tradition never dies. He's carried up in a flaming chariot to God. And both of these figures represent a sort of mystical tradition. In, in Judaism, Elijah becomes associated with the Merkaba uh, tradition, that is the esoteric, the kind of the, the original or, or the root of what eventually becomes known as the Kabbalah. It's a sort of a tradition rooted in the understanding of the chariot of God and the ascension of Elijah to God. Al-Khidr becomes an analogous figure in Islam and again reveals the kind of deep connections between these traditions and the conscious appropriating and redefinition of these older figures um, in order to create something uniquely Islamic. This is why I find this figure so fascinating. Shh. Sure, we can look at his mysticism, right? We can look at the inner meanings that he reveals, the story that he reveals to Moses, the the kind of the idea that there is a certain knowledge of God that may elude mankind, a sort of understanding of why bad things happen to people. We can certainly look at his mystical connections, his relationship with dreams, his relationship with astrology, his relationship with uh, being an itinerant kind of prophet or a hermit that goes from city to city and you know hands out wisdom, hands out and collects wisdom. But I think as a historian, he represents a fascinating figure, which is why I wanted to really kind of present his story to you in this episode to show you how we can use the figure of Al-Khidr to situate Islam within a particular cultural milieu, within a particular religious milieu, to see how that moment in which Islam was a small minority demographic, um, how it then built on what was already there, taking the Jewish stories, the Christian stories, the Zoroastrian stories, the Persian stories, and how it rewove them together in order to uh, explain its own position in the world, explain its place in the universe. But that simultaneously reflects a conscious creation of that, but is also a reflection of that historical moment itself, right? We, in seeing Al-Khidr, we see Islam as created earlier on than, than some of the, the theses of Patricia Crone and, and Michael Cook and others who have kind of tried to argue that Islam may have been a later uh, attempt by empires, but instead that we see it quite that by understanding Al-Khidr and connecting him to older Near Eastern uh, traditions from the Ugaritic tradition of of uh, Ugaritic gods to Anahita to the Jewish tradition, that that likely places Islam accurately at the 7th century, which is which in other words tells us that the Muslim narratives that we have about the origins of Islam around the 7th century are relatively accurate, though we can give take a, a bit. That this, using the, this kind of literary analysis and this kind of literary history, or this textual history in which we trace the figure of Al-Khidr through these traditions, we're able to see where Islam emerged, how it emerged, and its relationships to the broader religious traditions of the time period, that is, the late antique Near East. Hopefully this was an interesting episode for you all. I know this was a very kind of, uh, you know, a symbolic textual analysis that we did here. We did a really kind of 
deep digging into into the texts and try to connect it to these kind of broader traditions this is hopefully interesting in helping us see one way of looking at islam that differs from the kind of traditional narratives and that's what this season has been really about season three has been about presenting you islamic history in a way that is not always taught in the classroom to kind of look at it from the margins to look at it in different ways what happens when we look at it from the perspective of say women what happens when we look at it from the perspective of Al-Andalus or the Persian world? What happens when we use sources that aren't just Arabic sources but are Berber sources and Moorish sources or Persian sources? Or what happens when we look at these figures like Al-Khidr rather than looking at figures like Muhammad, etc.? So looking at sort of the, the origins of Islam through Al-Khidr is one way of, of kind of, you know, kind of doing a revisionist history or at least a history that offers a different perspective. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Um, you know, you can follow me on social media at A-A-O-L-O-M-I I'm on uh, Instagram as well as on Twitter Twitter I do my regular updates on there and on Instagram you get a peek behind the scenes on Head on History we'll be putting up some behind the scenes photos of that as well as some pictures of me teaching so definitely check me out uh, on social media. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to subscribe. Leave some feedback for us uh, on iTunes or the uh, podcast app. You can also uh, find us now on, uh, what is it called, FM FM Player as well as Stitcher Radio. Uh, we're available on a variety of different platforms. We would love to get some five-star ratings and reviews. I'd love to hear back if you've been enjoying this season or not. I will definitely be reading some of those as the episodes develop. Anyways, I'm going to end it there. Thank you for tuning in. And remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds.